Sound. Sound. Music. Acoustic. Noise. Sound. I have a favorite sound, I think. Sounds. Ultrasonic. How they listen. Just a little. The one place where it sounds the best. You're listening to Sound. Sound matters. <laughs> Hi, my name is Tim Hinman, and you're listening to Sound Matters, a podcast about sound and things that matter. Brought to you by B&O Play. Now, where would we be without YouTube? Without that unlimited resource for finding homemade films featuring pets that do funny things. I could be more specific and indulge in a personal favorite. People who have filmed pet dogs singing. It's a burgeoning subgenre of internet content, and judging by the viewing numbers, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people enjoying titles out there such as Funny Dog Singing Compilation, or LOL Dogs That Sing, or My Dog Sings with Beyonce. And the world is a richer place because of this, I'm sure you'll agree. But there might just be a more serious side to all this. The idea that animals can hear, relate to, enjoy, or really sing along to the very human phenomenon of music. So that's where this edition of Sound Matters is headed. We're going to be meeting two musicians who've spent far more time than most playing music for and with animals. One is David Rothenberg. He's a musician, composer, author and philosopher naturalist. In art, you don't have to know what's really happening. You just have to make one thing that's cool. And that's enough. Who cares if it never happens again? You did it once and it was interesting. But before we hear from David Rothenberg, we're going to hear from musician, multimedia artist and filmmaker Laurie Anderson, who has been doing something rather extraordinary for years now. I spent a lot of time recently doing concerts for dogs. Let's hear it for the small dogs over there. Hello, small dogs, yes. I know how twee it is and how, like, silly, but I have to say it is so much fun to play for dogs. I was able to catch up with her in Elsinore in Denmark, where she was performing works from her film and recording project, Heart of a Dog. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How is Based loosely around the life of her own dog, Lola Bell. Here's a tiny clip from the film. Lola Bell sat in the studio with me through lots of different record projects. Rat terriers have really good hearing, especially in the upper registers, and they never seem to get bored. Hey, let's listen to that cello track for the 70th time. Great idea. Let's do that. Laurie Anderson's work with performance art, music and sound has always had a lot to do with great ideas. But concerts for dogs. 
Why would anyone do that? There. The perfect audience. And we'd like you for this first piece to get down to your dog's ears if you can. Or if you need to, if you have a little one, pick them up and see which way Dogs are in the present. They, they don't come to a concert like most humans do with preconceptions or expectations or like, I'm going to a jazz show, so it's got to sound X, Y, Z. Or I'm going to Costco thing. So if it turns into jazz halfway through, the audience is insulted because they didn't get what they expected. Dogs don't feel that way about it. They just come and they open their ears and they're like, okay, I'm here right now. What have you got? What we've got is music intended to please dogs' ears. And I've tried to find sounds that they respond to. Uh, staying away from low end because thunder is terrifying to a lot of dogs. Uh, so they really start shaking. So I had some subsonic stuff that I was playing, and, I, and suddenly dogs are like, whoa, they started shaking. I was like, I've got to stay away. Also, they hear much better than we do. So you play a note like upper upper mid-range with some crunch in it and they're like all they're like hey nice all their heads move at once and humans are like well we're not as you know head active as dogs well we also don't have flaps over our ears so they they sometimes have to flip the flaps up we humans don't have to flip our flaps to hear music but is it really the music that the dogs are enjoying or could it be something else They also appreciate being in an audience. And I think for some humans, that's the same kind of attraction. They don't like music so much as they like being together in a group and a clump of other people. And just it's a social aspect of music. A lot of people go to clubs and buy music because of more of the social aspect than the music itself. If you have a little dog, get him barking, okay? Come on, guys. This is your turn. So I think dogs are, you know, they're pack animals and they like to be in a group and and they like to be with people. They actually like us, you know, which is, I mean, we're their food source too. I mean, okay, if things were reversed, you know, we'd, we'd all be doing some tricks. You could say that a musician always has to perform some kind of tricks for some kind of audience, no matter who or what that audience might be. Laurie Anderson's approach to all of her work is grounded in a deeper sense of experience and an understanding, or an attempt to investigate, something we don't know about. It begins with uh, silence, I think. You have to start somewhere. Pay attention. Listen. Flip your flaps if you have to. Because you're always, of course, passively listening, but you're not, or I'm not necessarily paying much attention to it. So just, I don't mean silence, I mean probably stillness. So just to sit or stand just for a moment and turn your head and listen around you and really uh, spatialize it. 
Uh, it's like discovering a new sense in, a, in certain ways. Discovering a whole new sense, even if it means doing something so seemingly frivolous and unserious as playing a concert for dogs. Unseriousness is something my next guest, David Rothenberg, has been accused of more than most of us. Well, not everybody thinks that I'm serious. They, they think I'm just some crazy character who runs around covered in bugs making weird sounds. Being called a crazy character covered in bugs running around making weird sounds might be enough to put some of us off. But not David. He's onto something. Something serious. In the past years, I've spent a lot of time making music with the sounds of the natural world and with musicians in the natural world that is playing music live with birds and whales and insects and trying to take this activity kind of seriously so it's not just a gimmick but some way to make interesting and unexpected music that no species could make alone. Music that no species could make alone. That's what you're hearing in the background, part of a live performance with birds in New York. We know there's something about these animals, they're like us, but they're not like us. In what sense can we figure that out? We'll get back to that later. First, it's important to note that David's serious work has led him to ask some very serious questions. And it's led him to contribute to what we can call real or hard scientific projects. Well, sometimes I work specifically scientifically with scientists, but I know that science and art have very different criteria for truth. The biggest difference is if I want to play music, say, with a whale, I can do it once and, and show, like, look, something cool happened here. This really happened. The clarinet and whale were making music together. I have one recording that I think really demonstrates that. Only one, after doing it many, many times. This is that recording, an underwater jam session between a clarinet and a whale. But scientists who have been impressed by that recording, because it's not what they expect, say, great, now do this a thousand times and we can start to analyze what's going on here. In art, you don't have to know what's really happening. You just have to make one thing that's cool. And that's enough. Who cares if it never happens again? You did it once and it was interesting. Since I criticize scientists somewhat in my uh, book, Why Birds Sing, scientists are a little angry with me there for like stepping on their turf. But then some of them said, you know, you're right. You, you have interesting questions. Let's go look at your questions. Let's go work on them. One thing that the scientists would like to try and prove is whether or not birdsong always has the very functional function of displaying for territory or attracting mates and so on, or if even just a part of what they do when they sing could be classed as just singing. Just singing for the sake of it, because it feels good to be a bird and sing, because birds like singing. If they could prove that, it could mean that they are actually just making songs for the sake of it. And if they're doing that, we could argue that they're making music. We've been working for five or six years at this lab at City University of New York, really trying to see, can you demonstrate scientifically that bird songs are musical? 
Can you define what musicality might be in terms of another species? And I found that an interesting challenge, although it's not the usual way I think about this stuff. When making music, I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm trying to have an interesting experience connecting you know, human sounds with natural sounds. But I, I think it's really interesting working with science because the scientific study of these phenomena need the help. Whether they realize it or not, they need the help of uh, musicians and artists to greater understand what they're working with. Scientists just don't care if things are cool. And musicians care about little else. To reach a greater understanding of nature, something we humans have been thinking about ever since we invented civilization. And it's only recently that we got some new tools that might mean it's time to take some new steps forward. Right from the beginning, when, when, when sound recording was invented, one thing people wanted to record was the sounds of nature, bird songs and, and other natural things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's quite interesting to think back to the time where the very idea of a recorded piece of sound was a shock, something new, something marvelous, something futuristic. Like, listen here, sound is coming out of this thing when that was totally new, to get oneself back into that sense is pretty interesting. Moving forward means finding a place to start. The first thing to do is figure out why you want to do this. And if you approach it as I did, it's the idea that you're hearing interesting music being made by these animals and you're wondering what it's all about and if there might be some way you could learn about it through participation, kind of joining in with what they're doing so much music everywhere nobody needs any more so why why do we keep doing it what do we do with all this technology how does this quandary of our overproducing age connect to nature and taking the sounds of nature seriously in a way it's, it's much easier than one might think to do this like, since we started this conversation, we've heard, like, two different species of cicada singing outside my window. But, you know, before I started thinking about this, I never even noticed the difference. It was just like this noise in the trees. While talking to David, I hadn't noticed the cicadas in the background either. Had you? It's like a single noise, but like... Okay. Just a noise. It's beginning, middle, and end. But if you were to... Take that, take that sound, analyze it, turn it into a sonogram, which is a printout of frequency against time on your computer or on your phone. You would see it's beautifully structured, very perfect, very organized, and not just a disorganized piece of noise. You hear these repeating patterns of sound being used by all kinds of animals. The devil, it would seem, is in the details. If we can unpick the details, we might be able to see and hear the things that are making the animal sounds work for them, and something that might cross over into the way human sounds work for us.
it's very hard to find a certain trait that really distinguishes humans from other animals. Like you can say, okay, you know, humans are the only ones who use tools. Well, we know that's not true. All kinds of animals use tools. Crows use their sticks to pry, pull food out of difficult to get places. You know, chimpanzees use all kinds of tools. Okay, or the only ones with language. Well, even prairie dogs have a language. They can have different sounds for different humans even. They can recognize people by sound, give them names. Maybe the one that we don't know about or that, that seems promising is we're the only species constantly wondering what it is we're doing here. <laughs> Animals are not so worried about how they fit into the world, but they might be because we don't really know what's going on in their psyche. I'm not sure I'm going to accept that cicadas have much of a psyche, though I could be wrong. I could, though, be convinced about plenty of other animals. Dogs, for example. But if playing music with animals could help us really to understand them, then why not give it a go? You know, way back in time, I think for thousands of years, as long as there's been human music, people have been listening to the sounds around. But in recent history, you know, there's some famous examples of people playing along with birds. The world's first outdoor radio broadcast is said to be a BBC a live broadcast of a cellist, Beatrice Harrison, playing along with a nightingale in her garden. And she's playing Bach and Elgar starting in the 1920s and repeated every year thereafter until World War II. To do that in the 1920s was a major engineering feat. And they broadcast this on the BBC World Service all over the world. So it's possible that millions of people heard for the first time hearing a nightingale along with a cello. And they heard this wonderful connection between human and uh, nature. Beatrice Harrison played her cello with a nightingale as a demonstration of cutting-edge technology in the 1920s. You can hear the sound of bombers flying overhead instead of a cello in the last recording. Bombers that are on their way to Berlin to drop bombs. Demonstrating another unique aspect of human nature, namely the ability to drop bombs on each other. Now, all these years later, it's David who's in Berlin and he's chasing nightingales. You probably all know that Berlin is one of the best cities in the world to hear nightingales singing. Some would say there are more nightingales in the city than in the countryside surrounding We're working on this film, Making Music with Nightingales. We were going out every night in Helsinki and in Berlin. And so we'd have these sessions between 10 p.m. and midnight, and we'd sleep for two hours and go back 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. And, and uh, you know, much can be said about the songs of nightingales, and either people know a lot about them or we know nothing about them. It depends what you think knowledge really is. But chasing nightingales and trying to play music with them isn't always as easy or rewarding as you might think. It seems so ridiculous towards the end. Like, I don't even know why we're doing this. Birds are like singing the same stuff and they're fed up. And there's uh, three basic sounds they make. There's click sounds, like click, 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 click. And whistle sounds. And every once in a while, they make this sound that sounds like, like, like a sort of like effect on an electric guitar, like, like, a, like a bluesy sound. And scientists at the Free University in Berlin 
have determined that this bluesy sound is the one most sexy, most attractive sound for the female nightingales. <laughs> Why doesn't the male nightingale just make that sound over and over and over and over again? Like, <laughs> because that's what the females really like. And uh, of course, any of you who might be interested in music know that's not what you do with your coolest effect. You do it just the right amount of time. At one point, I was just so fed up with the whole thing, and, and that turned out to be the best recording. Like this, this, this is, I really like it. This is when I, I really, uh, you know, thought that it, it, it was all ridiculous. Something happened. We were looking for nightingales, and there weren't any in one place in the middle of Finland. We found this other bird that I I'd always heard was a great singer to sing along with, to play along with these uh, blithe reed warblers. And there they were, like six of them in different trees. It was 5 a.m. and they were just singing this strange, complex, fast-moving song that seemed immediately to respond to things that I was doing, little things. And, and it was totally unexpected and surprising. Given the chance, would you get out of bed before dawn and go and see an improvisation concert performed by musicians with birds as the sun comes up in a park somewhere in New York City? Well, if you wouldn't, there are plenty of others who would. I was shocked we set up this performance a few months ago at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden at dawn on the longest day of the year, June 21st, to play along with birds. And so I got some really interesting musicians together cellist Hank Roberts, guitarist Charlie Rao, uh, accordionist Lucia Vitkova, and we just got, got there and there were like 400 people there. Like, really? How did everyone find out about this? Why are they here? It's dawn. Most people aren't up. And I think they valued that this was going to be an experience of the kind that doesn't usually happen. And, you know, sometimes you want to do this, not for an audience, but for, like, you know, you don't want too many people around. But other times, you see people are actually quite willing to come out and do things like this. And if you'd been in New York and gotten up that day, this is what you would have heard in the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. In our dawn concerts, at some points we just didn't play much at all because we wanted people to hear what was going on around, which was so crazy because it's like this park in the middle of New York City in June, the sounds that come at dawn, a mixture of like planes and helicopters and, and uh, catbirds and uh, you know, wood peewees and all kinds of, a whole mixture of things. And I find in, in my case, I, I really want to celebrate that, the strange mixture of the human and natural and sound. You know, people tend to listen to bird songs to identify the birds, and then they say, okay, next, show me the next bird, but actually pay attention to what they're doing. David Rothenberg's work has led him all over the world, seeking out new animal musicians to jam along with, from whales to cicadas, to pretty much anything that makes a noise, really. But most of all, birds. 
all sorts of birds. I seek out the birds with the most interesting, complex, and kind of musical, kind of surprising songs. So I've enjoyed nightingales, the common nightingale, and the thrush nightingale. I've liked playing along with laughing thrushes, particularly the white-crested laughing thrush. I played along with catbirds, brown thrashers, and then... Uh... David's work has given him a very unique insight into the natural world. And whether or not the science ever plays out and gives us any results we can rely on as hard facts, at least he's spent his life doing something cool. Never been sure what anything in the natural world thinks about what I'm doing. I don't know if the birds or whales like it, but I feel like some interesting thing happens between us, between these different species that one could not do alone if you really listen and take it seriously. Something's going on. And in a way, I want to keep doing it more and more and more rather than try and explain it or analyze it. I'm happy that those who want to analyze things like the scientists of birdsong, neuroscience, that they are interested in analyzing these things, but I don't want to you know, hold my own journey into knowledge upon such analysis. I don't go as far as Werner Herzog, who would say things like, to me in nature there is nothing. It is just a cold, relentless search for food. They don't care about us. We don't care about them. I know he doesn't believe that, but he figures that's what you should say. Because he, he's made some of the best films about nature. He loves it. But he, he, he believes that, you know, words are supposed to fail you. I guess that's why he makes films. That's why, um, I guess, it's in music I want the, the deepest connection to. Some people in the nature sound world are, are constantly lamenting the fact there is nowhere free of human sound anymore. You know, that it's all dying or killing the planet. It's a kind of depressing narrative. And all those things are true. But on the other hand, the only way in which we're going to survive, if there's any role for human beings in the planet, it means admitting there can be human and natural sounds together in some way that doesn't have one destroying the other. If we can't figure it out together, then there's no place for us in the natural world. A better place in the natural world for us. Let's hope that's how it all turns out. There's just one last recording I thought I'd let you hear before we close. It's a recording from somewhere around 1893. Not, strictly speaking, a recording of nature, but an attempt to imitate it. This is vaudeville whistler John York Attlee performing his amazing whistling tricks and the song Mockingbird. The Mockingbird, whistled by Mr. John York Atlee, accompanied on the piano by Professor Geisberg. This program was written and produced in full harmony with singing dogs everywhere by me, and my name is Tim Hinman. I'd like to thank Laurie Anderson. You can find out a lot more about her and her work at laurieanderson.com. Thanks to Kulturweft in Elsinore, who set up the interview with Laurie for me there. 
Thanks to David Rothenberg, of course, for the use of his recordings and the interview. You can hear a lot more of it at his website, davidrothenberg.net. And you can check out his book while you're at it, called Why Birds Sing. Thanks to Andrea Rangecroft for help with editing this program. This podcast is made possible due to support from B&O Play, and you can find out much more about them at beoplay.com. That's beoplay.com. Sound. Sound. Music. Acoustic. Noise. Sound. I have a favorite sound, I think. Sounds. Ultrasonic. How they listen. Just a little. The one place where it sounds the best. You're listening to sound. Sound matters. (laughs) 